0: Good morning. How's everyone? Good. Good to see everyone. Matthew, I love the sweater vest. really sharp this morning. All right. If you have a Bible clip with me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's where we'll start. Uh, if you are a visitor with us, there should be a black card back underneath the chair around you. You're more than welcome to use one of those. Um, if you are a visitor, my name is Mike Skinner. I'm the new pastor here at the church. We're glad that you are with us. Um, We're going to start in 1 Timothy. We're in the middle of a sermon series that will end next week called You Asked For. It." And so what we did is we got questions from congregation members about things that they had questions about. Um, It could be about life, it could be about the Bible, it could be about faith, um, things that normally don't get preached or talked about. Um, And so two weeks ago we asked the question, uh, how should Christians act in a world full of religious violence and hatred? And especially in this age where there's terrorism everywhere, what should our response be? Um, how should we act? What should our posture be in that kind of a world? Um, last week we talked about the question can a Christian lose their salvation? Again, a very hotly debated question, one that um, keeps a lot of people up at night. Um, this morning we have uh, another question that is very interesting uh, and very much relevant and applicable. Um, But before we get to it, I want to start off by reading you a couple of quotes. Two quotes. Um, These are by a man named John Henry Hopkins. He was the bishop of the Episcopal um, Diocese of Vermont. So he's a pretty big deal, okay? And this was the late 19th century, so think like 1860s, 1870s, not too long ago. In a series of essays and lectures that he gave, he wrote this. The Bible's defense of slavery is very plain. St. Paul was inspired and knew the will of the Lord Jesus Christ and was only intent on obeying it. And who are we that in our modern wisdom presume to set aside the word of God and invent for ourselves a, quote, higher law than these holy scriptures which are given to us as a light to our feet and a lamp to our paths in the darkness of a sinful and polluted world? He goes on to say, Nothing can be plainer than that slaveholders are important members of the Christian church. Taught by the inspired apostles and advocates of this doctrine, the abolitionists, bring themselves into direct collision with the scriptures. This leads to one of the most dangerous evils connected with the whole system, a disregard of the authority of the word of God, a setting up of a different and higher standard of truth and a proud and confident wrestling of scripture to suit their own purposes. This is a man not too long ago in a Christian pulpit arguing that the Bible defends slavery. In this civil rights era, um, not too long ago, very passionately. Um, Hopefully, you are like, something's off of that. If you're not, don't say anything, okay? It could get really awkward. You're like, that sounds right. No, no, that's wrong. We're on the other side of history, okay? And statements like that we look back on and are kind of embarrassed about that people would use the Bible so um, strongly to support what seems to be so obvious of an issue um, that a human being shouldn't be able to own and abuse another human being. Um, The question that, that came in for this week was how are we supposed to understand the authority of the Bible and how do we interpret it or how do we handle the different interpretations? Because um, back then, believe it or not, most of the people uh, on the side of slavery, pro-slavery, were Christians. There was, in fact, actually a very small minority of Christians who were abolitionists um, during the Civil Rights era. Um, it's kind of a uh, stain on our past, if you will, that we weren't able to see that. Um, and, and we should not be too surprised if maybe there's an issue in our own day. Right, where we are holding fast to the authority of the Bible, saying the famous catchphrase, right? the Bible said it, I believe it, it settles it. They said it about slavery. And we now look at them and go, you were so off, you were so wrong. Right? Um, you could easily think of thousands of things that people disagree about in Scripture um, uh, right now. Right? You could find uh, across the nation today, pastors who would on the authority of God's word, say that women should not teach, Um, women should not uh, pastor, women should not preach, there should never be women up on stage, and the reason is because God said it, and they believe it, and so it settles it, right, Um, and they have verses, and they have passages, and they have reasons, okay, And then at the same time, you can find pastors who, on the authority of God's Word, said women should and probably uh, can and probably should come up on stage and teach and preach. And they have verses, and they have passages, and they have reasons. And the question is, how do we use the Bible? How is it supposed to be used? How do we understand its authority? And then, two, how do we pick between differing interpretations? How how, how do you and I uh, make sure that we don't end up on the wrong side of history? Much like this Episcopal Mm -hmm. Bishop. Um, did. I would hate for my name to be quoted one day, the sort of a passage, as the butt of the joke, right? Um, so, so what is this thing that we call the Bible? Um, what does it mean to say that it has authority or that it, it kind of has any kind of direction on what we should believe, and what we should do? And then when two people both claim something different from the same Bible, where do we go? How do we proceed from there? We'll start with what's probably the most famous Bible verse about the Bible itself. Um, it's in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to a younger pastor named Timothy. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete. Equipped for every good work. So he says the scriptures here are breathed out by God. There's a sense, this is where we get the word inspiration. They're inspired by God. Um, the same way we breathe out our words. What we find in the scriptures are God's wills and God's thoughts breathed out into written word for you and I. And notice the purpose of this um, inbreathing. Notice the purpose of this inspiration. It's so that God's people might be transformed, they might be taught, they Mm -hmm. might be corrected, they might be trained in righteousness. Above all, that they might be equipped to do good works, that they might be built up into the church, into the people of Jesus, called to go out into the world and bring light to dark places and peace to hostile places and love to broken and and desolate places. Um, The scripture is not given to us, so that we might have a rule book. The scripture is not given to us so that we might be smarter than other people. Um, the scripture is given to us to form a certain type of character inside of us. And thus enable us to perform certain types of actions in the world. And that character is Christ-likeness. And those actions are kingdom actions. Things that brings God's will to earth as it is in heaven. And he writes as this, The Bible that isn't there simply to be an accurate reference point for people who want to look things up and be sure that they've got them right, is there to equip God's people to carry forward His purpose, a new covenant, a new creation. It's there to enable people to work for justice, to sustain their spirituality as they do so, to create and enhance relationships at every level, and to produce the new creation which will have about it something of the beauty of God Himself. The Bible isn't like an accurate description of how a car is made, it's more like the mechanic who helps you fix it, the garage attendant who refuels it, or the guide who tells you how to get to where you're going. Now, when Paul says this statement about all scripture being breathed out by God, we've got to make a couple of comments and acknowledgements, okay? The first one is, he's not referring to what you and I call the Bible, Um As Protestants, we have a book that we call the Bible. It's got 66 books in it, okay? 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, and the official religious word for this is canon, okay? That's a list of final books accepted as Scripture. So, Paul is not referring to the canon because the canon is not made at this point, okay? So, when he says this word, Scripture, he's speaking of the Old Testament, Okay, of the Old Testament Scripture. He doesn't have in mind a concept that one day there'd be a New Testament, that one day there'd be this Protestant canon. Okay, um, And so Christians are largely accused of circular reasoning when it comes to the question of why they believe in the Bible. And it kind of goes like this, right? I believe the Bible's true. Why? Because the Bible tells me that it's true. Well, why do you believe that the Bible tells you that it's true? Because I believe that the Bible is true. On and on and on and on, and it goes circular. Um, and I think rightly that should be rejected, okay? Um, what really happens, how we really get scripture, is not that it falls down from the sky in the hands of God and he goes, ah, this is my word to you, and then we have it. it. It's a historical formation, a historical promise. And so the earliest Christians, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, started collecting writings. And There were other writings as well, and they circulated around the churches. And what would happen over a period of about three, four hundred years is certain writings would be seen as authoritative and useful in worship, um, which means they were correct, they were accurate about what the apostles knew and remembered about Jesus, and they were useful for making people more Christ-like and equipping them to accomplish the work of the kingdom. And at the same time, books that did not do that were excluded. And this process takes place organically, in and out, for a few hundred years. And it's not actually until the end of the 4th century. Um, So, the late 300s, 397, until you have a canon that's finally fixed. Now, some of the books in our Bible barely made it in. Like, by the skin of their teeth. Um, Hebrews, for instance, barely makes it in. And In fact, Hebrews makes it in for a reason that we now know is wrong. The argument for Hebrews being in the Bible in the ancient church was that it was written by Paul. We now know that Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews. It would be interesting to go back and tell the early church this and see whether they'd be like, okay, take it out then. But it's here. It's in the canon. James made it in. He had a little bit of fighting to do. Um, Revelation, obviously confusing and scary. It had to do a little bit of fighting for itself. There were some also other pretty good books that just slightly didn't make the cut. The Christians didn't say they were bad or you couldn't learn anything from them. They just said they're not quite God-breathed. They don't have quite the same type of authority. God doesn't work through them in quite the same way. Um, Some books were accepted very early on. For example, the four Gospels, um, very quickly, almost without uh, controversy, were accepted by most churches as authoritative, which is more interesting because there were four of them. And all the churches seemed to accept, despite any differences in them, these were the Gospels. These were the stories that we should leave uh, and and, and live our lives based on about the story and life of Christ. Um, Now, for some people, this history, having the Bible, um, having to work through human hands and processes, um, makes them very, very nervous. Because they want the Bible to be this kind of thing that comes down from heaven, right? They want the Bible to... Um, be safe and sure, almost as safe and sure and true as God himself is. Um, But historically, that's, that's not how it has worked. Now, Christians believe that God has supernaturally kind of intended over the process of the formation of the canon, right? So that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the authors to write these books, also inspired them to be put together and to be kept to you and I. And then here's the really good news about the authority of the scripture and about why it's okay, maybe, that it's a little more messy historically than we'd like to often admit. The good news is because of this the Bible is not God. At the end of the day, you and I, as Christians, believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We do not believe in the Bible. The canon will not save anybody. Now, the God who is witnessed about in the canon will save people, but the actual book itself is just... I can tell you I worked at a bookstore. It's marked up. The paper's really cheaper than they could pay, make you pay for it, right? I mean, it's just paper. It's fake leather bounding, so they can make you pay a little bit more. Again, they get the engraving. There's all these add-ons, right? It's a business. It's a profit, right? Right? Um, but so often in, in Christian circles, we have kind of gone, fallen into what we might call bibliology, bibliology um, which is idol- idolatrizing the, the Bible, making the Bible seem uh, as if it's God. And, and we place all of our trust in the Bible, um, and, and we lose the fact that there's not a uh, fourth member of the Trinity, right? It's, it's not the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and in the Bible, it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now... The good news is the Bible itself actually tells us this. I mean, the Bible itself on more than one occasion points authority away from itself towards God. Um, and so in Romans 13, we're told all authority is from God. In John 19, 11, we're told pretty much the same thing. In Matthew 28, 28, um, the risen Jesus makes a striking claim that all authority in heaven and earth has been given Through a group of 66 books that will eventually be collected in 397
1: AD. Now, he doesn't say
0: that, right? He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, a living person, a reigning God. And in John, his gospel begins with, In the beginning was the Word. And he eloquently goes on. And then in verse 14, he says, And the Word was written down and given to us as the Bible. No, that's not how it goes. In the beginning was the Word, and then the Word became flesh. God's message to us became a human being, a risen, eternal, alive God. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-4, we're told that God has sent lots of messages to his people through lots of different prophets and in lots of different books, but now in these last times he's given us his fullest and final message, which is his son, the historical life, works and words and teachings of Jesus. Flip with me to John chapter 5, if you would. Jesus himself makes this claim um, that scripture is only authoritative inasmuch as it points to himself. That there's a way that you can read the Bible and use the Bible, and yet it not help you. It not provide what it is supposed to do for you. And this, I think, helps us get to the part of how do we deal with all these different interpretations. We'll pick it up in um, verse 30 in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. As I hear, I judge. and My judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth, not That the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and yet you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom you sent. Now, if you're an underliner or a highlighter, or 39 and 40 are where um, the money ball is here. He says, "This you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, that you refuse to come to me that you may have life." Jesus says you can be a scholar in the Scriptures. You can know the Scriptures inside and outside. On multiple occasions, they will get in disputes with the Pharisees and other Jewish people, and they'll have these different interpretations of the Bible. And Jesus, over and over and over and over, is going to say, if you read the Scriptures, and no matter how you do the math or add up the logic, 1 plus 1 plus 1, A to B to C, and it doesn't equal Jesus... You have read them incorrectly. Which means a lot of things. It means you can know scripture, but not know Jesus. It means you can be biblical, but not Christian. The adjective biblical, I don't think, is actually that high of an adjective. At one time, slavery was biblical. I mean, there, there, there are real verses out there, right? I mean, there's real passages I don't think slavery is something that Christians should do, but if you wanted to make that argument, it's there to be made. You can make that for all kinds of things. Genocide, the treatment of of, of all kinds of different people and and, and circumstances. Instead, Jesus says, the scriptures, if you, you want to know if you're interpreting them correctly, you're interpreting them correctly if the end point is Christ. If the endpoint is Jesus. In fact, you might be better off to be Christ-like instead of biblical. Um, the Bible is only the Bible in as much <coughs> as it points to Jesus. So theologians use terms to try to distinguish this. Um, we talk about the Word of God being Jesus himself. Um, and we often apply this term, the Word of God, to the Bible. Okay, And, and sometimes this leads to our idolatry of the Bible. Strictly speaking, the Bible, the canon, is not the Word of God. The Word of God is an actual living being. He became a human being. He taught. He performed miracles. He died. He resurrected. He's alive right now, resurrected, ascended at the Father's right hand. There's what we now call a written Word of God, which would be the Scriptures, and they bear testimony <coughs> to Jesus. But the moment that this Bible, the canon, stops being used to bear witness to Jesus, the moment it loses its authority, Christianly speaking. The Bible is authoritative in as much as it points you to Christ, to his work in the world, to his character being developed inside of you, that you might love others more, that you might serve God, that you might... Forgive the people around you that you might pray and bless your enemies, that you might look out for those who are downtrodden and poor and lost. This is what scripture is intended to be. Now, in regards to different interpretations, the Bible is perhaps one of the more confusing books. Um, we could all very easily give suggestions to God about ways to have made his, his, his written message to us much simpler, right? Um, bullet points, please. God, um, a nice PowerPoint presentation goes a long way. Okay, all these you know, all these stories and all these different voices in the scriptures, these collections, library of books, can make things kind of confusing. When we get two different interpretations, or when you, on your own, are, are trying to interpret what the Bible is saying, um, I have here four four suggestions. Okay, and we'll we'll conclude this um, this morning sermon with this. The first one is this. Read in context. So read the Bible in context. Um, In all kinds of contexts. There's more than one context. So you need to read the Bible in its original context. What do these words actually mean to these people? Um, The people getting this letter, this um, document, what would that mean to them? Also, read the Bible in your context. Um, The Word of God, every time it's read, has a unique meaning to it. Um, Because it's read aloud in a new situation, Um, there's this thing called speech act theory, um, which means every time you say something, it accomplishes something, right? Um, So if I say open up your book to one person and then say open up your book to another person, it might have different meanings, right? Depending on the situation, the circumstance, the person who's getting that word. Um, And so we've got to know our own context, what's going on in our world, what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our lives. We've also got to protect ourselves that our... Our own context doesn't blind us from what the Bible is saying. That we don't let our presuppositions and our um, already the things we already believe, maybe as as Americans, as, as as very comfortable people, that we don't let that blind us to the more challenging parts of the Scriptures. So we read the the Bible in context. Second, we read the Bible in community. We read the Bible with others. I've spent more of my life um, than than studying the scriptures than not Um, and I've I've taught on passages multiple times and written papers on them and um, lectured on them and and had conversations with people about them and and what I'll find is when I'm talking to someone new in a community setting, a group setting um, the the passage that I I think I know inside and out they'll they'll say something, it might just be an offhanded comment too and I'll be like what in the world I never saw that. And then I'll use that in my next lecture and talk and discussion and everything, right? Community, I think, is vital to reading the scriptures, um, both with alive people and with dead people. Um, I'm not talking about weird cemetery events here, okay? But um, we have a library of, of Christians who have written about the scriptures. Um, death does not separate you from the Christian community. Um, you and I are part of not only a living Church, um, but also a living and dead church. We are part of the um, martyrs and those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And and there are a lot of arguments about the Bible that we circle around on today that have already been answered and already been answered well if we would go back and read um, what people had said in 300 AD, and 400 AD, and 500 AD. Um, one of the questions I got, one of the sub questions on this topic about the authority of the Bible and how you. Um, deal with different interpretations is what kind of authority should we give people or denominations or creeds, right? Is there any person who's non-negotiable, right? Who, their word goes, obviously mine, um, but, but other than that, right? How do we, how do we determine, right? Who can, who can we listen to? Who should we listen to? Is it a free-for-all? Um, my, my advice generally with that is this. You have to be careful on both sides. I do think it's important that everybody uh, makes up their own mind and, and looks at all the evidence and, and, and truly believes um, what they say that they believe um, but I do also think um, just as it's true in any field right that there's always some reliance on those who have um, expertise and by that I just mean people who have spent more time than you have thinking about it people who have studied it people who do it for, for a profession right and I think that those people should be treated and in their interpretations with inherent respect, but at no point does that make them infallible. I think of it a lot like a doctor-patient situation, right? Your doctor knows a lot more about medicine and, and biology and the human body than you do, um, and and I've tried, right? I'm a hypochondriac. I read Web and D* every night before I go to bed. Um, sometimes my doctor, like so I've I to the same doctor since I was a little kid and so we have a very good working relationship and we, you know, he knows I'm kind of into that kind of thing so he'll usually give me a little bit more detail about different things and how the medicines function and what those blood levels mean and, and the feedback system of the body and, and all those interesting intricacies of how we're created uh, and every now and then I'll ask him a question and he'll like let off the guard right and go into like the microbiological uh, chemical processes of what happens when this medicine hits your gut and then 12 hours later extends. And he's listing off all these long words and drawing diagrams on the board. And I'm like, okay, I get it. You know more. <laughs> yeah. I get it. <laughs> I trust you, right? Now, does that mean my doctor's infallible? No. There might be doctors who have different opinions. There probably are. I have a healthy <clears> respect <throat> for him because he's done the education that I haven't done that I probably can't do on the internet. But I also... I'm willing to entertain other thoughts and to maybe get second opinions and to make sure it makes sense to me, those kinds of things. Um, this is how it often feels when you are a Bible teacher or professor. It's like in a live classroom setting. Um, Tuesday, I start back up at Houston Baptist University, and I'll have a group of 40 um, sophomore to seniors in front of me, and our task will be to talk about theology, and I'll get questions. I'll get One question that'll pop up two questions and then three questions right there. And often the problem for me is for me to truly answer those three questions would take me eight hours of untangling all kinds of assumptions and incorrect facts and going through history and philosophical things. And so at times, and I hate that I have to do it, but at times I have to just say, this is the answer. And I can, if you email me, I'll send you a couple of books that you can like really go look and see every little step that you have to do to get to this is the answer. But we just don't have the time of the day, and your students don't care, your your classmates, your peers, they don't care, right? This might be right, like how your doctor feels sometimes when you're asking him these questions. He hears it all day, and he goes, "Look, do you? I mean, do you really want the eight-hour lecture about how all the biochemistry works? I can give it to you." Um, So, yeah, with authority, I think respect, um, but by no means infallibility um, by anybody. Um, In fact, I think um, you should be cautious if you find yourself believing the same things. If you believe everything the same with one person in authority. Does that make sense? Like if there's one scholar or one writer or one pastor where you have nothing that you can think of where you disagree with them on, I think that should be a red flag to you you should at least have, like, one thing where you hold on to some kind of original thought, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly people in my life that, that I find, I, I just think they think well. There's not much for me to disagree with. Um, so reading community, reading context. Um, St. Augustine, early church father, had a, a rule for reading the scriptures. He called it the double love hermeneutic. Um, and I think it's a great, it's a great uh, way to read the scriptures. Jesus says the greatest command of all is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said this, you should take that and apply that to your interpretations of Scripture. So, if at the end result of any interpretation of Scripture you get to something that doesn't make you love God more, so it makes God out to be more of a monster, more fearful, or more of a kind of um, scary horror being, or or you don't feel God's love—it's a God who doesn't love you, a God who doesn't love everybody. <laughs> Or you get to an interpretation that doesn't make you treat your neighbor more lovingly. He says, I don't know where, but somehow go back and look at the math. You've messed up the formula. He says, use double love as a constant test against your interpretations. It's how I'm reading the Bible. It's how this pastor's preaching the Bible. Um, No matter how logical it might seem, no matter what it might end up in, doesn't lead me to love God more and to love my neighbor more. If not, Augustine says, reject it outright. Somewhere in the uh, formula, you've made a huge mistake. Um, and then the last one, is we read the scriptures to find and follow Jesus. Um, we read the scriptures um, not to know facts, not to win arguments. Um, the scriptures uh, are here for us, um, so that we might be haunted um, and beckoned and pursued and feel the call of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus faithfully into the world. We read the scriptures so that our minds might be transformed. We read the scriptures so that our character might be developed into Christ-likeness. We might love other people and forgive other people and live in harmony um, with others um, while we accomplish together as a community kingdom goals and kingdom missions. Um, So read in context, read in community, Read to love God and love others more. And then read in order to enable yourself to follow Jesus. There's a way in which you could spend your whole life fiddling around with the Bible. And at the end of the day, you might have nothing to hold for it. And so when it comes to the Bible, and when it comes to how Christians should treat and regard the Bible, we give it a lot of authority. It's very important. It's very important in our church. Every Sunday, we do intense work in the Bible. Um, But we do that work, not so that we can somehow master the Bible or own the Bible, but so that somehow we might be closer to Christ. That we might be more Christ-like. We might be able to discern the the voice of His Spirit as He moves us forward into the world to equip us for His good works. Would you pray for me? Father, we, we thank You for this day. We thank You for...